Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland. That's right, the big-time novelist. And you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, Daryl Holter and Bill Deverell are here to discuss their new book about Woody Guthrie in Los Angeles. And Daryl busts out his guitar and plays a Woody Guthrie tune. When was Woody Guthrie in Los Angeles? He was in Los Angeles from 1937 to 1941, which I believe is the subtitle of the book. Damn. Joining me are my co-hosts, Tom Lutz. He is the uh, founding editor of LARB. Hello, Tom. Seth, I'm so happy to be here. And Lori Weiner, LARB's fiction editor. Hello, Lori. Whatever. Let's do the show. Daryl Holter is an author and a historian who's taught at both USC and UCLA and a singer-songwriter, also co-owner of Chevalier Books right here in Los Angeles, where we we love that where we recommend that you shop. And William Deverell, his co-author, is also the author of several uh, other books. He's a professor of history and director of the USC Huntington Institute of uh, California and the West, and they are here to talk about Woody Guthrie. And guys, before we get going in the general uh, interview, I think Woody Guthrie is one of those figures in American history who a lot of younger people have heard his name and perhaps don't exactly know who he is, kind of like Will Rogers in a mm-hmm. way. You know, he has parks named after him, but who is that guy kind of syndrome, I think, might have said in. Woody um, was born in Okima, Oklahoma, uh, 1912. He was from a middle-class family. His father was involved in real estate and he was active in local Democratic Party activities when the Democratic Party in the South was very conservative. But uh, the family suffered a number of uh, misfortunes, including Guthrie's mother suffering from Huntington's Korea and being committed to a sanitarium and his family life being totally uprooted and he was really kind of out on his own at age 16. And he kind of bummed around, did sign painting, uh, didn't, didn't really hold down too many jobs for any length of time, got married at a young age, uh, and then was really buried in the Dust Bowl, uh, and like so many people in the 1930s, uh, uh, and he came to L.A. in 1937, and then stayed in L.A. from the 1937 to 1940. That was the period that we focus in on the book. After uh, leaving L.A. in 1940, he was in New York City where he resided for the most of the rest of his life. He wrote all these songs, but at the time, they weren't particularly commercially popular, and he didn't make any money from them. Uh, and then he had Huntington's Korea himself, which he started showing symptoms of in the 1940s, and was uh, by, the t- by 1953 was, uh, you know, was in permanent uh, health care and basically in decline until, the, until his death in 1967. And his time in L.A. is not as well documented as the rest of his life, which is something you take care of in this book. Right. The documentation is thinner during this period of time because it's an earlier period, uh, and he wasn't as well established. He really didn't even have a, a, a place that he, that he lived. I mean, he was always moving around. And so we don't have as much documentation from this period. But also what's happened with Guthrie as he's became really famous is we have this iconic image of Guthrie, Guthrie riding the rails during the Depression. Guthrie, you know, the the radical singer with the, you know, labels on his guitar saying, this machine kills fascists. The guy who was a prototype for Bob Dylan, you know, the founder of the folk music 
revival in the 50s. We know those, those iconic images, but what Bill and I tried to do was to get back behind that. How did Guthrie get that way? And what we found in our research on L.A. was that his political and his, his musical formation was really in L.A. during that, this three-year period. And we're very interested in the arc of this guy as an artist and a protest singer, because after all, he's christened Woodrow Wilson Guthrie. So he's born in 1912 and named for the sitting president. And then the arc of his life, both in terms of the distance traveled and in his political distance, is really profound. But what we're really interested in this project is the ways in which L.A. played such a huge influence on his trajectory. One of the things that interests me from that is the idea that he's not the hillbilly poet. He's a he's a middle-class kid, obviously down in his luck, as many middle-class people were in the Depression, but, uh, but a middle-class kid who is adopting some kind of persona that is not exactly where he comes from. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one of the important things that happened in his formation of this persona. Uh, and Guthrie himself never worked in the fields. He very rarely had a regular job. And yet he found that when he spoke like uh, he'll country people spoke, that, that they responded well to it. His radio show became very popular among the large number of Okies and Arkies and other folks from the Dust Bowl on KFVD. Uh, and he started to adopt this Okie persona. But it wasn't just an Okie persona as he became more political. It was a political Okie. And that was something very unusual. The, 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 the radicals and the leftists who went to organize the uh, the workers in the fields in, in the Central Valley uh, pretty much gave up on trying to organize Okies and Arkies. They did well with Mexicans and blacks. But Guthrie was something new, and when he appeared on the scene at his, his, the first rally he played in downtown L.A. in 1939, and they saw him for the first time, he became an instant kind of celebrity among the political left uh, in Los Angeles because no one had ever seen an Okie that talked like that and looked like that and slur- and talked like and spoke like that and sang like that, but actually had all this political meaning inside of it. Where in L.A. did the um, the migrants from the Dust Bowl settle, and where did uh, Woody live in L.A.? So one thing the book makes clear is um, this notion that we have that the Dust Bowl migrants pushed out of Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, etc., we assume that most of them went to the Central Valley following a kind of John Steinbeck Jodes journey across Route 66, but actually more of them come to L.A. than go to the Central Valley. The numbers are pretty similar, but we've forgotten how prominent those arrivals were in the demographic growth of 1930s L.A. And in large respects, I, I think the, gust, the Dust Bowl migrants that get pushed out that come to greater Southern California settle in the county. So the county grows quite a bit, and they settle in probably South County and East County of L.A. But they're also in the San Gabriel Valley. They're in Glendale. They're in Atwater Village. Um, they're in Burbank. I think it's pretty diffuse. Uh, Guthrie himself lived in Echo Park and in, in uh, Glendale, although I don't think he ever paid rent. Um, there were a large number of uh, Okies and Arkies and others uh, in, in the L.A. region. A lot of them lived alongside the river, uh, and they would— camp alongside. There were encampments alongside the rivers and the tributaries, just like we have now. The book implies that he became who he was, the Woody Guthrie that we know, not just, but not just 
while he was in Los Angeles, but because he was in Los Angeles. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And that is uh, maybe the major thrust of the book. So Los Angeles in the 30s is roiling with political corruption, um, a fairly prominent left liberal reform coalition that puts a mayor in office in the time Guthrie's here. And Guthrie is both highly observant of that culture. He's a cartoonist of great talent. He cartoons a great deal of political unrest in LA, and we put some of those in the book. He's really naturally gifted at that. And the political ferment of Los Angeles is something that Guthrie both paid attention to, and then as he increasingly paid attention to it, it paid attention to him. And so through particular context, Will Gear maybe being the most prominent or one of the most prominent, Guthrie is brought to the attention of uh, organizers and political activists on the far left and in the CP. And Guthrie charms them, and I think they charm him. Uh, and it undoubtedly plays a major role in his political development as a troubadour. Right. Gu- Guthrie, Guthrie's radio show uh, on KFVD, uh, after his show, uh, there was another show that Ed Robin had. And Ed was a, the L.A. correspondence for the People's Daily World, which was the Communist Party newspaper daily of the West Coast. And Woody came up to Ed one day and he said, and this is when Tom Mooney had just been exonerated by Governor, Governor Culbert Olson. And uh, Guthrie uh, said, told Ed, he said, I've listened to your show and I find it kind of interesting and I wanted to play this. I wanted you to hear this song I wrote about Tom Mooney. And, and Ed was sort of baffled because he thought Guthrie was just another hillbilly singer. He, he didn't think much about him. And he heard this song and it blew him away and he said, whoa. Now, that's interesting. Can you do that at this rally tonight that we're having in downtown L.A.? And he said, yeah, I can. And that's when Guthrie walked up to the, well, he was sleeping on the stage by the time they got to him, it was 11 o'clock. And then he came up at the stage with his, you know, hillbilly outfit and, and did his songs and kind of swept everybody away. So Guthrie, uh, Ed became kind of like an agent for Guthrie. And Guthrie now was the, the person that you wanted to have at every political rally in L.A. and at every picket line. And Guthrie, in effect, found both an intellectual and almost a real home. I mean, he crashed at Ed Robbins, and he lived there, basically. Um, And so the Communist Party and the radical movement became a home for Guthrie. I'm Seth Greenland, here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK, and we are talking to Bill Deverell and Daryl Holter. I want to get to the music a little bit, uh, the music itself. Um, one of the one of the things you can say about L.A., and you can say it about America in general, obviously, but it, in L.A., it's very easy to trace. The music of L.A. is immigrant music. It's migrant music. It's m- music that comes from somewhere else. And the blues guys who came in almost these same years, a little bit starting in the 20s, but, uh, but really uh, in the 30s uh, as well and early 40s, when they got here, their blues changed. It became something else and became something else because of the mix of music I assume they were hearing in clubs here. Um, you called uh, him an, a hillbilly singer. Uh, is his hillbilly singing different because of L.A. or is it somehow the same as what was happening in Oklahoma? Well, I think the important thing, it really wasn't until Guthrie got to L.A. and was doing the radio show and was running out of songs, that he started writing songs and writing very prolifically. So uh, with some exceptions, this is really where he started writing and started to craft these sorts of songs. And if you, if you 
dig deeply into his songs as I did in my research and particularly looked at a lot of the unpublished materials, um, you'll see uh, a, a, a level of sophistication that is certainly not there in the other ones. One of the songs I recorded on my Radio Songs album is called One by One, and it's a beautiful love song. There are other songs about other things like you know, various subjects, etc. But um, he, he really becomes a, a much more sophisticated uh, writer. And it also, this is in L.A. when he starts to write his autobiographical uh, novel, Bound for Glory. Uh, and as he's really honing his skills as a writer and becoming much better. And he wrote his, his daily article for the People's Daily, too, uh, Woody Says, Given what was going on in musical development in, in American history at that point, it would have, and particularly given where he was from, it would have seemed very natural for him to have become a country singer. And yet he became the spearhead of, of the folk revival. How did, how did that occur? And, and how did he avoid going that, that Nashville, Jimmy Rogers route? Well, he when he when he first started the radio show, he started it with his uh, his his cousin Leon Guthrie, uh, who who also went by the name of uh, Oak, and and also Jack. He had multiple names, uh, and uh, Jack was very sophisticated, handsome, and he wanted to be like a cowboy singer, like a movie cowboy singer. And, and he had a nice Washburn guitar, and he was very polished. And, and Guthrie was, you know, almost the opposite and almost wanted to be the opposite. And when he played with Jack, he was really kind of like the comical sidekick. And Jack wanted to go down that route, and Guthrie didn't really want to go down that route. So, you know, he took all these hill country songs, parlor songs, ballads, gospel songs, and really worked those until he needed new ones and he started writing new ones. Uh, and he never never really left this as kind of a f- f- folk ar- arrangement. He didn't read music. He wasn't interested in elaborate melodies. He wasn't interested in learning a lot of guitar chords. He wasn't interested in a lot of sophisticated stuff. Pete Seeger said, Woody Guthrie will write a song, and he'll, he'll write one verse, and he'll do this. It'll, it'll be one chord for six verses. So, you know, so that's, that, was, that was Guthrie's take on this. He... Turned, out, turned up his nose on uh, jazz and other forms of things. He didn't think very much of it. But there's also a trajectory here that's important to that distance Guthrie travels, which is an increasing awareness on his part of racial egalitarianism. So the Guthrie that ends up playing with Lead Belly is a Guthrie that's making obviously musical and political choices that others did not make. So you're going to sing uh, something for us. Do you want to tell us about it first? Uh, I did this album called Radio Songs. It has about 12 songs that come from Guthrie's radio shows. Um, None of the songs that he did on his radio show were ever recorded, so we don't know what any any of them really sounded like unless they were subsequently recorded by him, and some were and and many weren't. I thought I would do one that's really appropriate today, uh, which is called the L.A. New Year's Flood. Uh, This was the Great Flood, uh, and just by way of... um, why this was important. The songs that Guthrie wrote for the radio show were songs that were really points of entry into what people were talking about in L.A. in 1937 to 1939, talking about the weather, talking about the rainstorms, talking about homelessness, uh, talking about poverty, talking about uh, police brutality, uh, you know, talking about sex, uh, talking about love, talking about the same things we talk a lot about today. Uh, 
many of the Okies and Arkies and people from the Dust Bowl s- set up little tents and uh, lean-tos uh, and, and uh, encampments along the river, the L.A. River and the tributaries to the river. And literally hundreds of people lived there because they could get water and that was a place where they could, they could fish and what, whatever. And so when on New Year's Eve in 1933, uh, when the great storm came, uh, literally people were swept away by it and houses were and encampments were swept away and many people were lost. So Guthrie wrote uh, a song about that called the, uh, the L.A. New Year's Flood. My friends, do you remember on that fatal New Year's night The lights of old Los Angeles were flickering oh so bright A cloud burst hit the mountain and swept away our homes A hundred souls were taken by that fatal New Year's flood but that's not the way that you do it. No, I on, on the on the I, album, right? I I use poetic license to alter the melody. My friends, do you remember on that fatal new? Lights of old Los Angeles were flickering oh so bright. A cloud burst hit the mountain and it swept away our homes. A hundred souls were taken by that fatal New Year's love. Celebrating Happy New Year's Eve We knew not that in the morning A thousand souls would grieve The water filled the canyon And down the mountain rolled The wild Los Angeles River Swept away and scattered, the 
got a song here that I made up about that. Kind friend, do you remember on that fatal New Year's night? The lights of old Los Angeles was a flickering oh so bright. I'm Seth Greenland here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK, and we are talking to Bill Deverell and Daryl Holter. You um, you talked about maybe there were some personality oddities that uh, caused him to move around so much. Um, can you talk about psychologically what might have been going on? Well, Guthrie was a very restless uh, person. Uh, it was very hard for him to stay in one place for one time. It was very hard for him to stay with his family, with his wife, and with his children. Uh, and I'm not sure medically how one would diagnose him. Uh, uh, even before he sh- started to show the symptoms of Huntington's chorea, which devastated him, um, there was in his personality a tendency to be... Um, flighty, make quick decisions, uh, change your mind frequently. You get get the sense studying the guy that the synapses are firing so often and so robustly that he's just trying to stay one step ahead. And of course, as Daryl intimated at the beginning of this discussion, the family's cursed by tragedy, uh, particularly fires. And so you get a sense also that Guthrie's trying to stay one step ahead throughout his life of what may be dogging him from behind. Yeah, and he never really makes it. Like, like Pete Seeger said, Guthrie's a really interesting guy, but he's a hard guy to live with. Mm-hmm. So he left L.A. for no reason other than restlessness, or is there a story behind why he, he departed? Well, there were a few things. Uh, you know, one was that his um, things were starting to change in the political scene. Uh, the whole political scene changed with this, the signing of the, the German-Soviet uh, agreement of uh, uh, August 1939. Um, the Communist Party's position on, on alliances with progressives changed. And also, you know, Guthrie's ability to draw, uh, draw an audience in the progressive left dried up somewhat too because that coalition collapsed. And so, you know, it was harder for him to, to, to make a go of it here. You know, he eventually lost the radio show uh, and became just kind of fed up with it. And so he left and went to Pampa. But Will Gear had said, why don't you come to New York? Because I'm going to be starring and helping to direct uh, Tobacco Road. uh, And I can get you a job there. So 
uh, Guthrie left his wife in Pampa, Texas, and uh, and hitchhiked and took a bus to uh, to New York uh, in February of 1940, uh, and then was there for sev- several months with with Will Gear. The other dimension of this too that plays a role in Guthrie's decision making in the late 30s and the coming of the war is the publication of Grapes of Wrath. And so when Grapes of Wrath is published, Tom Jode's character gets increasingly identified with Woody, and Woody increasingly identifies with Tom Jode. And that's a different national stage, obviously. What was his public profile? How famous was he at that point? He wasn't very famous. He was famous, you know, he was a celebrity around the radio show in L.A., and then he was a, a kind of a celebrity within the, the, the political intelligentsia, uh, both in, in L.A. and then later in New York. Uh, and among certain people that followed the emerging folk scene as he as he would join with Pete Seeger and others to form the Almanac Singers in the early in the early forties, uh, um, but not much of a profile. I, I will say though, his book Bound for Glory had something like a thousand reviews, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. Uh, and uh, but then he and he has he did write some other things. One of which was just found a couple of years ago. Part of my job on the show is to ask the nerdiest question uh, each time. So why is that? I don't know. Um, you're both trained historians. You both know very well the Hobsbawm, Eric Hobsbawm's thesis of the invention of tradition. Is is Guthrie um, inventing a tradition or adopting a tradition? That's a great question. I um, thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. And not, it's a little not a, nerdy. Not especially nerdy. I, my hunch is that he's adopting a tradition. He, there is a sui generis uh, feel to Guthrie. He is an um, iconoclastic, eccentric, difficult figure, but he's also profoundly steeped in gospel and uh, the southwestern folk culture, and he's a very strong mimic. Um, so I think he's more adopting. And in many respects, then what um, somebody like um, Bob Dylan does is further adopt and further shape that fairly malleable American figure. So my my hunch is more the adoption. So I get to take the other view and and say the invention. Um, You know, everything from the Oki persona to the way that he dressed to the way that he hung the harmonica rack around his neck to the way that he played the harmonica, all the things that you saw in early Bob Dylan were basically Woody Guthrie. And this this particular character then was was mimicked by dozens and dozens of folk musicians as as they went forward. Even people who had never never knew anything about Guthrie except someone when Dylan Dylan received some records from somebody in Minneapolis. Have you ever heard this guy? And he was blown away by it. And and what was inventive about this, I think, is that he could actually write a song about anything. He could write a song, you know, he wrote a song about downtown traffic because he got in a car accident on the way to the radio station. He wrote it in 10 minutes and played it that day. Uh, so he could write a song about anything. He could write poems about anything. He could draw. He was this kind of kind of full-formed in a lot of different ways, even though he always kept this very, these very rough edges, and deliberately so. And in that sense, I think he was somewhat inventive, too. I mean, the persona was, was invented. And, and in, in later years, he actually kind of wanted to shake off that persona if he could, but by then he was ill, and it was hard to do in any case. It was already pretty, pretty well shaped for him. The book is Woody Guthrie, L.A., 1937-1941. The authors are Daryl Holter and Bill Devereaux. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. 
before we go, here's another podcast you might like. Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. Want to know what some of the smartest people around are saying about this week's issues and events? Listen to Start Making Sense, the new weekly podcast from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Naomi Klein on climate change, Barbara Ehrenreich on the death of the white working class, Dave Zirin on the trouble with football, and a lot more. Join me, John Wiener, for new episodes of Start Making Sense every Thursday on thenation.com. You can subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Tom Letts and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week.